I'm going to invite you to join me in 1 Corinthians 15 for a few minutes, please. Before we wrap up the service, the choir has another number, but I'd like to share some thoughts from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We know that oftentimes when we hear bad news, no matter what that news may be, it is discouraging. It is disheartening. You hear bad news about an illness, a job loss, a friend stops being your friend, somebody in a marriage situation where you're threatened all of a sudden that your marriage is going to be destroyed, your plans that you have had for weeks and months for work or school, all of a sudden they're done, they're over with, or maybe there's a conflict. Somebody you work with, somebody you live with, there's, there's this challenge, this battle. We know that those moments, So when we get this bad news, it discourages, it's disheartening. We know that it distracts us, it robs us of our sleeping hours, and it just kind of consumes us during those times. That's exactly what the disciples had that evening that we saw portrayed and heard about a few minutes ago when Jesus says to them at that meal, I'm leaving. They They didn't want him to go. They've given up everything for him. And he says, I'm leaving, and where I go, you can't come with me. And in fact, when I leave... He says, in part of this departure, he says, you're going to be stuck behind and you're going to suffer the same way I'm going to suffer tonight. And on top of that, one of you is going to betray me. These men were shocked. These men were discouraged. They were disheartened. And it only got worse the next 12 hours. You know the story. It was read to us just moments ago. They're like the individuals that hope beyond hope that the bad news doesn't come true. They're like some of you who have sat at the hospital. And the doctors are working on a loved one. And you're sitting there and you're thinking during the surgical procedure, I know it's a life and death, it's a touch and go situation. But I'm praying that it come, they come out with good news. And all of a sudden they come out, they meet you there, and they say, I'm sorry. He, she didn't make it. Those disciples hope beyond hope. That this bad news of Jesus leaving, of, of Jesus suffering, of one of them betraying, that it wouldn't come to pass, but it came to pass. They saw him die. Some returned and witnessed the very event. They were disheartened. They were discouraged. And we all know what happened. They huddled in that upper room, hiding from everyone for the next few days. They were shocked. They were shamed. They were battling. But then Easter came, or the resurrection day as we call it, when all of a sudden they heard the news that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. And they were so curious, they had to run to see if that tomb was empty. They come back and they're sharing with one another different things that they have heard. Some come and tell them what they have seen. And then Jesus walks in the room. And to prove that he's real, he says, I want to eat with you and you can touch me. Oh my word, he's alive. They were thrilled beyond expectation. They were thrilled beyond how we could explain what you and I would feel like. For the next 40 days, they walked with him. They talked with him. And by the end of that time, they were changed people. They were absolutely different folk. In fact, after Jesus ascends to heaven, they no longer cower in a room. They, with boldness, with bravado, with courage, they proclaim the message before the very court that condemned Jesus Christ. They were just totally, totally changed people. They're not the only ones. There's a man who later on writes a lot of the scripture who was a miserable man attacking the believers, hailing the men and women to prison, scripture says. He was battling the, the conscience, the pricks that were inside. And he was in a, in a torment, in a battle in his heart. But then he sees Christ on the way to Damascus. He is changed. 
In fact, he tells a little bit of his story in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. He says, I am the least of the apostles. I am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, we preach so you believed. You know, they're not the only people who experienced this power, this drastic change, this joy that compelled them to serve. The people in Corinth that he's writing to, some of them were pagan idol worshipers. Some of them were involved with wickedness and lewdness, even in their religious worship system that was in Corinth. But then as he's writing to these people, he's saying, some of you, some of you have been drastically changed. Look at verse 30. He describes, he says, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest, he goes on, by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. If after the manner of men I have fought the beast at Ephesus, what advantage it me if the dead rise not? He's saying, you know, some of us are experiencing persecution. What changed the Corinthians from pagan worshipers to enduring persecution? I suggest to you it's one thing. I suggest the same thing that changed the apostles. The same thing that changed Paul. The same thing that changed the Corinthians is the resurrection. The news of the resurrection. In fact, as Paul writes this whole treatise on the resurrection, this entire chapter, one of the longest chapters in the Bible, he is answering and he is saying, here's what changes people. Here's what gives hope to people. Here's what gives enthusiasm and boldness to individuals. And in fact, he writes this entire explanation talking about the proofs of the resurrection, how it's going to happen, how it worked with Christ, what's going to happen in your body, when it's going to take place. And at the very end, look at the last verse of the chapter. As he concludes, he gives this, this thought. He says, I want you to be emboldened. I want you to have hope. I want you to be an individual who has changed. I want you to experience all this, this bravado, this courage, this enthusiasm, this zeal for God. And he writes, therefore, that therefore is an important, important statement. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as, much as you know that your neighbor in the Lord is not in vain. The therefore, that when he calls us to action, to be energetic, to be charged up, to be enthusiastic for Christ, is all based upon everything he's explained in the first 57 verses. Everything about the reality of the resurrection. If we back up for just a few moments and say, what does he tell us about the resurrection that can give us hope? What does he tell us about the resurrection that, should, that could change us? What does he tell us about the resurrection that can energize us? Let me just share four thoughts that he shares with these people in this chapter. He tells us the reality of the resurrection is this. Because the resurrection of Christ, we have a glorious faith to declare. What I mean by that is we have a message that is the best message of the entire world. It is the message that is, we get thrilled about our country. The Tuttles were sharing how the girls here just yesterday driving around, not being in the United States, but they call themselves Americans. And they talk about being in America. They don't remember being in America, some of, one of the younger ones, but is thrilled to be an American. And yesterday, or Friday, wherever they were going, there's a flag. There's an American flag. There's an American flag. And they were enthusiastic about America. 
because something they believed in, something that they had good memories about. Oh, we get enthusiastic about our sports teams. They may not win championships, okay? They might get beaten by the Eagles in a bad, bad game. But then you get excited about your team, and you even sing songs. Fly, Eagles, fly. Okay. And we wear the shirts, and we wear the logos, and we get excited about the tournaments because we believe in those guys. And we're thrilled, and we want to be tied to those champions. Paul is writing this, cha- this chapter, and he's saying, you've got a champion. It's Jesus Christ. You've got the best message of all to share. This message is about the one who came from the dead. Go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter where he makes the opening statements and he talks about how this is a message that is worth sharing time and again. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached to you in the past, which also you have received and wherein you stand. And he says, this is a message I'm not tired of talking about. This is a glorious message I want to tell you about over and over. And he goes on, he talks about how this is a true message. Look down verse 5. He was seen of Peter or Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above 500 brethren at one time, of whom the greater part remain under the present. Some have died, but you can go ask them. You can go ask them, he says. These are, it's a fact. Jesus rose again. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me. It's a fact. Jesus did die. Jesus did come back to life. It's, it's a reality. And he's making it very clear. He's saying, in fact, go down to verse 14. And he's kind of using a reverse psychology in his argument. If Christ be not risen, then our preaching is empty. And our faith is also empty. But he is risen, is his point. And there gives us a, a wonderful message. This is, this is no mistake. Jesus had died and he's alive. Here's a mistake for you. This couple, the Clevelands, are in upper New York going out shopping three, four years ago. They're 2015. They're out shopping. The husband experiences a heart attack. He collapses in the store. Some people around rush to give assistance. Somebody gives CPR. The hospital had sent an ambulance. They pick him up. They take him to the hospital. They get to the hospital and the doctors work on the man while the family is out in the waiting room. The doctor comes out and says to the family, he didn't make it. You can go back if you would like. The wife and one of the children go back. They're standing there, grieving, sobbing, and they see him move. They run out and they say to the doctors and nurses, you've got to come, you've got to come. The nurses come in, the doctor comes in, and he's not moving now. And the doctor says, well, he's kind of a young man. He's only in his 40s. He's got a lot of life left in him, and it's just an autonomic response. He's, re- he's dead. So the doctor leaves. They grieve a little bit more. He moves again. They go back. They get the doctor to come back in. The doctor explains, no, he's dead. It's just twitching. Goes back out. He lifts his leg. He opens his eyes. They go out, they get the doctor, they bring the doctor back in. The doctor says, no, it's not, he's dead. The doctor leaves. The man raises his head, grabs his wife by the hand and gasps. She thinks he's alive. <laughs> they go get the doctor. The doctor comes in, he says, I'm telling you, he is dead. Now, this has been going on for two and a half hours. He says that he's dead. Just then, the man tries to sit up and the doctor sees that he's trying to breathe and he's got a pulse. The doctor accepts the idea that he's still alive. (laughs) They rush him down to surgery. He doesn't make it. Oh, by the way, the family is suing the hospital. Okay, no surprise there. It was a mistake. 
in what they had declared. Okay? A tragic mistake. There was no mistake when they pronounced Jesus dead. He was dead. He was laying in a tomb for hours and hours and hours. His brain cells were without oxygen. His muscles would have started to atrophy. His, his system was shut, had shut down. He was dead. But then the greatest of miracles, he came back to life. Fully restored. What a message! We have a Lord that came back from the dead. Do you know anybody else who's ever done that? And lived forever? This Jesus, is, this is a faith worth declaring. That's what he's saying in this text. He's saying the reason we are charged up, the reason we are encouraged, is we have such a great message. Ray Stedman tells about a time when he was in the Middle East, he led a man to the Lord who was of the Muslim faith. The man then was sharing his faith that he's following Christ with some of his friends. His friends started arguing with him and attacking him. Why would you listen to Jesus? Why would you claim to be a follower of Jesus? The man's response was this. He said, well, let's say that we're walking down a road and we come to a break in the road and we don't know which way to go. We aren't sure if we should go this way or that way. And there is a dead man. And there is a living man. Which one would you ask for directions? They all responded in unison. We would ask the living one. He says, that's why I'm following Jesus. He's alive. Now, you know and I know that there are people who have tried to suppress this message. In the early years of communism, the early 19-teens, when they took over in Russia, they wanted to make sure that everybody followed party line, that everybody would come to the idea that they would, they would believe in the system and what they were preaching. Well, one of the things that they had to get rid of was religion because they were teaching there is no God. Don't trust in God. You trust in the state. And so there's record of times where the communist leaders would go out and hold city-wide, village-wide meetings. And they would have people stand up there and the people would declare and give evidence and give proof of why you don't believe in Jesus. Why he never was a real person or why he never was an individual who did miracles or why he was a, an individual who never died or why he's an... In, and they would, they would try to decry and, and discount everything because this whole generation they're working with had grown up with hearing about Jesus. And so they're trying to brainwash that older generation. They came to one city and the city leader was a believer in Christ. The city believer was, was one of those that had an outstanding testimony in the community. And so the communist leaders wanted to use him and knew that if they could get him to agree with them and tell everybody, I don't believe in Christ anymore, then that would make a huge difference in this town. There was thousands in the arena. The communist leader did his spiel, his speech. Then he turned to the mayor of the city and motioned for his... And they had told him beforehand, if you don't get up and follow party line, we will take your life and your family's life. The man got up, walked slowly to the lectern. It happened to be the beginning of April of that year, which means they were in the Easter season. The man was debating in his mind and in his heart to the best that anybody knew. He stood there. He looked at the crowd of thousands. Looked back at the communist leader who gave him the hairy eyeball, as we would say. 
Then the man did the traditional Russian greeting to the crowd. He yelled out, He is risen! The crowd and mass stood to his, their feet and responded, He is risen indeed! The shots rang out, but nobody heard him. They saw the man fall. But the thunder of the crowd expressing a faith that cannot be suppressed. Folk, we have the message. We have the truth. We can get fired up because our Lord is alive. That's the best message anybody can give. That's the best faith. Let me give you another thought, another reality that comes out of this passage that ought to excite you to the very top of your head, to the depths of your toes. It is this. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we have complete forgiveness. Look, go down. Go down a few more verses. Look down in verse 15. If Christ be not raised, your faith is empty. And his argument is, he is risen. But if it were the case, and then he makes this drastic statement, if Christ be not raised... We are yet in our sins. Oh, think about it. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are yet in our sins. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, then they which have fallen asleep, that is the ones who have gone before us, our loved ones who have died, our friends in this church who have passed away, he's saying, then they are perished. That is, if Christ be not risen, they're in hell. He makes the comment, and he says, and, in it, and if this is true, if in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. We're propagating a lie. But his argument is just the opposite. His argument is, listen, we are forgiven. Paul, the one who persecuted people, without the resurrection, he is still in a miserable state of guilt and condemnation for persecuting people and taking lives. The woman who was taken in adultery, there was no hope for her. The thief on the cross, if there was no resurrection, this thief was not with Jesus in paradise. You and me, without the resurrection, we are stuck with our lying, our cheating, our anger, our gossip. We are stuck with giving into the temptations, being dominated by, by habits and devices that, that we're ashamed of. But the fact is, Jesus Christ did die in our place for our sins. It's a true story. He gave his very life. Robert Coleman writes about a little boy who loved his younger sister, like many of your kids in your, your home. And this little boy's parents were just in a turmoil because their daughter had been diagnosed with a serious disease and she needed a blood transfusion, a very serious blood transfusion if she was going to survive. The only compatible donor was the older brother. The parents didn't want to approach him, didn't want to talk to him, but the doctor said this is, this is the only hope and the boy will be sick for a while. It will take a, it'll take a while, but he, he'll, he should recover fine. So they, they explained to the little boy that your sister needs your blood to live. He was more than anxious to do it. He was excited that he was going to help his sister. They got to the hospital and he even stayed in the bed with her and they were enthusiastic and they came to the point where they were going to do the transfusion. They took the girl into this part of the room. They took the little boy over to this part of the room and that's when he got somber and serious. And as they were hooking him up, all of a sudden the nurse saw they started to cry. And she says, does it hurt? He says, no. She says, then what are you crying for, honey? He said, when am I going to die? He says, what do you mean? He says, they're taking all of my blood and giving it to my sister. That little boy misunderstood. 
but he was willing to give his life for his sister. Now, obviously, he didn't lose his life. And obviously, the story ends with a good ending. But there is one individual who did give his blood that we could live. He gave his very all. He paid that high, high price. And God accepted his payment. Proof of it being that after the payment was made and laid at the throne of God for our forgiveness, three days later he resurrects as if the debt is canceled. Jesus no longer has to be suffering. Jesus is back because God accepted the payment for our sins. We have forgiveness. We have hope. We have opportunity. There's nothing more we can add to what Jesus has done. Some of us grew up in churches. We were told you got to get baptized. You have to go to church. You have to give money in order to help Jesus get you forgiveness. That's not true. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, he says, It is, or literally, paid in full. Fellow Ebenezer Wooten in Britain was holding revival meetings throughout city, city after city. And he had meetings in this one city, and at the end of the meetings, he was wrapping up and leaving the, the crusade building and walking out, and a man came running up, and he says, did I miss the meetings? Did I miss the meetings? He says, yes. He said, well, do you know who the preacher was? He says, I was the preacher. He says, are you all done for the night? He says, well, we're wrapping up. What can I do to help you? He says, I want to know, what do I need to do so that I can get myself into heaven? Wooten looked at him, he said, you're too late. And the man said, what do you mean I'm too late? You won't even talk to me? He said, no, you're too late. He said, preacher, you're supposed to help people out. What do you mean it's too late? You don't have time to talk to me? He says, no, no, that's not what I mean. You're too late. There's nothing you can add to the work of Jesus Christ. It's all been done for you. There's nothing you need to do but accept it. You're too late to try to improve upon the work of Jesus Christ. We have forgiveness. We have hope. We have a glorious faith to declare. We have a complete forgiveness to, in, to enjoy. We have a wonderful future. Because he rose again, here's a reality that ought to thrill you. We have a wonderful future to look forward to. Look what he says. Look what he says as he goes on. He's going to talk about this idea of the future. In verse 20, Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits, that is the, the very first one, of them that sleep. In other words, the promise of more to come. I know there's a lot of people who do not know for sure where they're going to heaven. We understand that. I was one of those years ago that I thought and I hoped. I was reading the account of George Bush, Vice President George Bush under Reagan. Brezhnev had died in Russia. They had the state funeral. There in the, in the great hall, they had his body laid out. And Bush says he saw something that was just absolutely amazing. The widow of Brezhnev came up and was standing by the casket. Now, remind, I remind you, these, this is the leader of that world at that time that said, there is no God, there is no, Bible is not truth, there's nothing after death, it's just in this life. She stood there for the longest time looking down at her husband's body, shaking, but just trembling. And finally, she made a movement. A movement that when she made it, it caused people to get up out of their seats and to cluster around her so that it wouldn't be seen. But it was seen. She started making the sign of the cross over his dead body. The very man who denied that there was any faith, the very man who denied there's any existence, his wife had the innate knowledge that there's something after death. And she was reaching out, trying something to help him out. 
Well, I got news for you. This is the something you need. You got Jesus Christ, who is the answer for it all. Look at how he talks about it. He says, if Jesus Christ is the first fruits, that means then of them that slept in verse 20, it means that those people are still alive and they're going to come back physically one day. What he's talking about is a reunion. That means for those of us in this auditorium who have said goodbye to parents, who have said goodbye to grandparents and brothers or sisters or spouses, we're going to see him again because Christ resurrected. There's going to be reunion. It's talking about this idea that there's going to be a resurrection of our own bodies, a change in our own bodies. Go to verse 42. He describes what our bodies will be like. So that which is, this is the resurrection of the dead. He says, it's sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It is sown or buried in weakness. It's raised in power. He's describing our bodies. Our bodies are weak. Our bodies struggle. Our bodies get the arthritis. Our bodies get the torn meniscus. Our bodies need the glasses. Our bodies lose their hair. Our bodies have the aches and our bodies struggle with addictions. We're overcome. We are weak. But he's saying there's coming a day when you're going to get a new body. And everything will be refreshed. And everything will be renewed. So that these individuals, when we see them again and we get our resurrection bodies, we are going to have bodies that will be in perfect health. Bodies that will not need doctors, will not need to have insurance anymore. Our bodies that will never have to go to the dentist again. Praise God. No more of that drilling sound. We will have these wonderful bodies. Perfect bodies. Bodies that are going to be without any problems, without any weakness, without any, without any uh, difficulties. Wow. He talks and he says, there's going to be a restoration of creation. Back up where he says that Jesus Christ will reign till he put all enemies under his feet. That idea in verse 24, that he is going to put down all the powers and the authorities and he's going to overcome creation. There's not going to be any more winter storms. No more nor'easters. Praise God. There's not going to be tornadoes. There's not going to be floods. He's going to make this world a perfect Edenic environment. He says that, that with the resurrection of Christ, we have this hope for the future. Jesus is coming back. We will have Jesus reigning in the White House. Praise God. Well, it won't be the White House. It'll be the Golden House, okay, that he's going to be reigning in. He will be in charge. Then things will be done right. Amen? Jesus, this is what the resurrection is about. You're going to see your loved ones. You're going to be perfected. You're going to, have a, a, going to be able to live forever in this restored environment. You're going to have the return of Jesus on planet earth. And then he wraps up the chapter talking about, hey, there's going to be a rapture. Because of the resurrection, look at verse 51. I show you a mystery. We're not all going to die. We're going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trump shall sound and the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible put on incorruption, this mortal put on immortality. It's that event in the future where it could happen any moment, by the way, any day that Jesus comes back and takes off planet earth those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If before we end this service, if you get here, you're sitting here and all of a sudden everybody flies out of the room. That's the rapture. You look around, you go, where'd they all go? Okay. It is not an alien abduction. It's Jesus Christ coming back to take to heaven for a few years all of the believers before he comes back and resettles planet earth. That's what the resurrection is about. It gives us this hope. 
It gives us a future to look forward to. That, that's why Paul could endure the persecutions. They were only a short time. The real fun is coming. And so all this pain, all this ache, the disciples were giving their bodies in persecution. That was okay because what was on the other side and what the future held, they were so excited. We have a wonderful future to look forward to. That's the resurrection. That's why we should be excited this morning. We should be thrilled. This is the ending of his, of his chapter. We have a glorious victory to embrace. Victory shows up several times in verses 54 through 57. But not everybody embraces it. There was a school in, this, in America here a couple of years ago. They were, had a number of students in their seminary, and they decided to find out, do the students really embrace what they preach? So they did this experiment with their 75 students that were already passed through the preaching, the preaching class. They told them all, you're going to be assigned over the next three weeks to go downtown to an area in the town, and each one of you at a different time is going to go down there, you're going to preach a message out on the street to people as they pass by. The message you must preach on is a message from the Good Samaritan. You must preach about 20 minutes. We want to see how you do. We'll have somebody nearby keeping an eye and kind of grading you. But you prepare a message, go down there on the time that we give you, and you preach a message. The students didn't know this, but the person that they had watching them was a professional actor that was hired, Christian actor, who came and he placed himself right at the base of that spot where they were supposed to preach. He dressed himself up as somebody who was impoverished, somebody who was a bum, somebody who was sickly and who needed help. Every student as they came had to encounter this actor. And as they encountered the actor, the actor would ask and plead out loud, help me, help me. They wanted to know if the students embraced what they were going to preach about helping others. 72 out of the 75 students ignored the man and preached a message on helping out strangers. Now, before we cast too many stones at those 72 seminarians, maybe we should pause and say, have we embraced what we claim we believe? We believe that according to the Bible, the resurrection of Christ not only gives us hope for the future, not only gives us forgiveness, isn't just a good faith statement, but he goes on, he says, Verse 54, when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us right now the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul embraced the resurrection and allowed it to change him. To thrill him to the point that he would go out and declare the message. And that moved him to say, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. Embrace the doctrine of the resurrection. He says, I embrace it so much I break out in singing. Because this is actually a song. This is a poetic stanza of where he's giving praises to God because of what Christ has done. He makes the statement that because of the resurrection, sin has been beaten. We have victory. 
And he makes that statement. He says, you know, the greatest part of, of sin's consequence is death. And he, makes the, he asks the question, oh, death, where is your sting? It's, it's like the little boy sitting in the back seat of the car, strapped, strapped in his seat. And all of a sudden, a bee gets in the car. And the little boy is going frantic because he has a bee allergy. He's afraid. The dad tries to swat the bee away, but it's still hovering around the little boy, and he is screaming. Finally, the dad is able to grab that bee in his hand. After a few seconds, he lets it go. The bee is still starting to swing, fly around. The little boy screams some more, and the dad says, don't worry, the bee can't get you. Why not? And the dad shows the little boy his hand. He took the sting for the boy. You know, folk, that's what Christ did for us. Christ took the sting and gives us the victory. The victory that's not only future, but the victory that is right now that enables us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to be overcome by guilt. We don't have to be defeated by sin and temptation. We don't have to fear the enemy that is going around seeking to devour us. And we are in a spiritual battle. Just this past week, I was speaking with a preacher who shared the story that he was on a plane. And when he was flying here a couple weeks ago, he's flying to one part of the country, and a lady, a couple seats over from him, when the food came, she had ordered pre-flight, she said, no, I've decided not to eat. And he noticed that she bowed, and she was mumbling to herself after the food was gone, and so he thought, well, she must be recognizing Lenten season and fasting. So he thought, I want to get in a conversation, find out where she is in her faith, and see if she's you know, orthodox, or if she is, you know, evangelical, and try to find out if she really believes. And so he asked the woman, he said, ma'am, you don't mind if I, if I ask a personal question? I said, no, that's fine. He said, um, I saw that you passed up the food, and then you were bowing as if you were praying. Um, are you in a period of fasting and praying? She says, oh, yes, I am. And he says, oh, you must be a believer in Jesus Christ. And she looked at him and says, absolutely not. I'm a Satan worshiper, and at this time of the year, we pray for Christian homes to be destroyed. We have an enemy. We have an enemy. We don't have to give in to that enemy. We need to be wise, but we don't have to feel like we're defeated. Why? Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory. We're on the winning side, folk. God is doing great things. God is able to change people. God is able to move in lives. God is able to build us up. God is able to work in our hearts so that we can come in faith to him and he can change us into something for his glory without embarrassing, without without promoting any one individual. Can I rehearse a story of one of our friends this week? Came to our church two, three years ago came looking for a handout. Pastor Binkley said, I'll give you some money, but you have to come to church. So Earl bought him a ticket to the church. Okay. (laughs) So he came to church. Some of you he scared when he first was coming because he asked you for money very openly. Some of you got scared and nervous. What's this guy about? What's he doing? Then he got interested in doing a Bible study. And one of our men, Bob Knight, started a Bible study with him. And week after week, they got together and doing a Bible study. 
Week after week, Bob would say, hey, listen, yeah, you need, do you know that you need Jesus as your Savior? Yeah, I know I need Jesus as my Savior. Do you know that if without Christ, you're going to go to hell? Yes, I know that without Christ, I'm going to go to hell. I can't work my way into heaven. Do you want to accept Christ? Nope, not ready yet. That went on for months, every week, every week. Nope, not ready yet. And in the meantime, he liked you people. Now, that's not a surprise, but he liked you people. So he started coming more and more to services. You were gracious to him. You were kind to him. And several months ago, on a Tuesday night Bible study, when Bob asked him, are you ready to ask Christ? He said, yep, tonight's the night. He prayed and got saved. There was a change in his life. No longer was he the mindset of asking for handouts. Instead, he became extremely charitable with what little income he had. In fact, several of you know this to be a fact that when you'd go out to eat, he wanted to be charitable because God was so charitable to him, he wanted to now give to others. The joke is that when they'd go, he'd go out and eat with somebody to McDonald's and the bill would be 20 bucks, he would always want to pay the tip and leave a 20 for the tip. You know, and those of you who went, you would say, that's too much. Nope, nope. I want to help them out because I know where they've been. So people look for him. <laughs> he started coming to church more and more and more because he loved the Word of God. Started coming Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday nights. And can you believe it? He came Wednesdays. He wanted to be under the Word. And then he started getting into two Bible studies a week for a period of time. Came. You know, two weeks ago, he carried one of the flags down the middle of our auditorium during the missions conference. And unbeknownst to any of us until Friday, Tuesday, he collapsed in his apartment and went to be with the Lord. He sat right there, right next to Bob and Wanda, week after week. Ron G's, tall black guy. He's having his first Easter with Jesus. We're going to miss Ron. But Ron's a changed man because of the resurrection. Ron's in heaven because of the resurrection. Because he has a God. A God who wins. And always gives us the victory.